1: Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg's Sound On. People is angry, angry and want to
2: defend our houses, defend our families. We must demand the immediate negotiation of a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine.
1: Bloomberg Sound On.
3: Politics, policy, and perspective
1: from DC's top names. She's a supporter of abortion
3: at any time for any
0: reason all the way up to him, until the moment of birth congressman bud wants to be in between a woman and her doctor
1: bloomberg sound on with joe matthew on bloomberg radio vladimir putin threatens more missile attacks after hitting ukraine with the most intense bombardment we've seen since the start of the invasion welcome to the fastest hour in politics as president biden now promises continued support back on the phone today with Vladimir Zelensky. We'll discuss the dangerous escalation ahead with John Herbst, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, now with the Atlantic Council. Later, partisan rhetoric gets louder on the campaign trail with a weekend of debates and two Trump rallies. We'll talk with political scientist Samara Klar, the University of Arizona, with just now over a month to the midterms analysis from our panel today bloomberg politics contributor and democratic analyst Jeannie shanzano is with us along with lester munson principal at government relations firm bgr ukraine is still digging through rubble after russia shot more than 80 missiles at targets across the country sounds from kiev here a day after vladimir putin blamed ukraine for an explosion that damaged a key bridge connecting crimea to russia and putin is threatening more now after targeting civilian infrastructure civilian neighborhoods in this latest barrage the images are horrifying Vitali klitschko is the mayor of kiev people is angry angry and want to defend our houses defend our families our children president zelensky back on the phone today with president biden to discuss the need for more air defenses something we discussed earlier today on bloomberg with mark esper the former secretary of defense
2: i think at this point we need to rush anti-aircraft systems long-range anti-aircraft anti-missile systems into ukraine and provide um you know ukraine a veneer of defense because at this point this seems to be like one of the last cards that Vladimir Putin has, and that's the long range bombardment of civilian cities. It's
1: quite a thought. Let's bring in John Herps, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, now senior director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Ambassador, welcome back. We appreciate your being here. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron says the attacks that we saw by Russia on infrastructure in Ukraine represent a deep change in the war. Is he right? Uh, I would
4: say it represents more maybe perhaps a lot more of the same. This is not the first time Putin has gone after infrastructure, and he's been going after civilian targets since the start of the big invasion, you know, and, and the end of February.
1: Yeah. Ukraine was able to shoot down only half the missiles uh, fired by Russia, uh, as I read on the terminal here. We recall President Zelensky's cry for help, ambassador, to close the skies with the words that he chose when he spoke with, spoke to a joint session of Congress. Is is this simply a matter of providing more long-range missile defense systems like Mark Esper said? And and if that's the case, how come we haven't already? Esper
4: is right. Look, our policy as Moscow has conducted this war of aggression in Ukraine has been adequate, but not as good as it could and should be. The administration has sent lots of weapons to Ukraine, and they deserve credit for that. But the weapons they've sent have always been, you might say, of the second rank, second order. And they usually say no before they say yes, before sending weapons of a more um, sophisticated kind. So like the HIMARS, with a mm-hmm. range of 85 kilometers, which we finally sent at the end of June, Ukraine should have had in March. But we said no until finally we said yes.
1: And, and that's over a Putin. fear of escalation, right?
4: Correct. They've, they've been intimidated, in my judgment, by Putin's nuclear threats. Many times we said we can't do this because we're afraid Moscow might escalate. That is a a posture of weakness, which is not suitable to our interest. Finally, finally, we seem to have gotten that point right when Biden spoke very strongly against the threats of nuclear strikes by Putin a couple of weeks ago at the U.N. and on 60 Minutes. But before that, we kept saying we can't do X because, again, Russia might escalate. We are much stronger than Russia. We have a long history of deterring Soviet power, which is greater than Putin's power. We should demonstrate that now.
1: Well, I feel like I'm asking this every day at this point, and I'm sure I've asked you, Ambassador. Is it, do we need to not go back to the initial request for MiGs from Poland or other uh, yeah. or other NATO friends that are flying these jets that would be easy for Ukraine uh, to start flying now? Or is the concern Correct. that this spills over Ukraine's borders? Is that why the, the jets are off limits?
4: The, again, it, it comes from a certain timidity on the part of the administration, which is unfortunate, which has not served our interests. Again, what, the support we provided to Ukraine has been decent, it's been adequate, but it could be stronger and it could be if, it was, if we did the right thing earlier. And if we do the right thing now, this war will come to a satisfactory end faster yeah. than it will at the current pace.
1: Just makes but you feel like done, what else is behind that door there that, you, that we haven't sent already? That, I mean, the the reluctance well, you, has really been laid uh, bare so by conversations like these.
4: They're, they're, they're asking for attack arms, which are missiles which have a range of up to 300 kilometers. They're asking for, for more HIMARS and HIMARS with longer ranges, not the 85 kilometers that we're sending, but 150 kilometers or more. They're asking for tanks. They're asking for armored personnel carriers. Mm-hmm. And they're asking for, as um, former Defense Secretary Esper said, high-range um, anti-aircraft defense. All these things we should be sending. We should be sending. Putin's army is on the ropes in Ukraine. We want to help Ukraine uh, recapture all of its territory sooner rather than
1: later. Ambassador, how real is the possibility of this war spilling over into neighboring countries, crossing the border?
4: Well, it would be, be um, imprudent to rule out the possibility of Putin escalating. Uh, by escalating, I mean going beyond Ukraine or dropping a um, tactical nuclear weapon or more two on Ukraine. Yeah. The point is this. Putin's objective is not to take a bit of territory in Ukraine's east. It's, his objective today is to take political control of Ukraine. And his objective tomorrow, once he has Ukraine in his pocket, is to go after other states, including our NATO allies. So he is coming for our NATO allies, whom we are bound to defend with American troops. So, American interest, smart American policy, is to give mm-hmm. Ukraine everything it needs to defeat Putin for us. So, all we are providing is our weapons and money, not soldiers and American lives.
1: And Putin therefore, a smart play for us. And deter Putin from doing the same to Estonia or or, or another That's former uh, piece of the Soviet Union.
4: That's correct. We appease Putin in Georgia. We appease Putin when he sees Crimea in 2014. Let's stop appeasing him. Let's help Ukraine beat him. So, again, we don't have to worry about our Baltic allies or our Polish allies.
1: You've uh, obviously spent time in Kiev. You worked there, uh, Ambassador. When you yeah. see images like we saw today, this playground on fire, uh... Should we expect more attacks on civilians? Is that a strategy? I mean I don't even know how to describe that, but that appears to be the next leg as as Mark Esper suggested for Vladimir Putin.
4: He, Putin has been doing this since the start of the big invasion. It's not a strategy. It's a tactic which fails. It just makes the Ukrainians more determined to win. Yeah, and it's not their only war crime. You know they torture civilians. They are raping women. They are abducting. They've abducted tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian children. Sent them to Russia if you could to up as Russians, torn them from the arms of their parents. It's war crime after war crime. But the thing is, Putin's only got that because he cannot defeat the Ukrainian military. His army has proved to be a paper tiger. Right.
1: What do you think happens to that bridge from uh, Russia to Crimea in the next couple of days?
4: Uh, I don't know. My understanding is that the Russians have gotten the railroad over the bridge up and working, yeah. but not the, not the truck the lanes. So this this is still a partial problem for Putin, his supplies, military supplies for his army in, in Ukraine and civilian supplies to Crimea. But I mean, the Ukrainians perhaps will have another another card to play, but I don't know that for a fact.
1: Well, you know where that is. You know, I keep reading people hear these kind of buzzwords, a flagship bridge, a key bridge, whatever. Can you put this in perspective for our listeners as to how important that was to go after that particular structure, which, of course, Vladimir Putin opened on his own? I believe he was the first to drive across.
4: Correct. That bridge, I've stood at the spot where that bridge now rests. Uh, it is a critical logistical hub for Moscow, one to provide, again, civilian supplies to the people in Crimea, mm-hmm. but then also military supplies for Russia's army in the south. So if the bridge were completely taken out, it would greatly uh, complicate already troublesome military operations in the south, and it would speed up Ukraine's Counteroffensive in the south
1: what so would it mean the what would it mean politically for crimea what how would the people of crimea uh, feel about being cut off
4: well the thing to understand is that before moscow seized crimea in february of 2014 mm-hmm. a majority of the citizens of crime of residents of crimea want to remain part of ukraine yeah even though at that point maybe um 52, 54, maximum 56% of the people were ethnic Russians. A majority, including some ethnic Russians, wanted to remain part of Crimea. Uh, it's unclear what the people of Crimea feel now. There's been a truly massive campaign of repression against Ukrainians, the Ukrainian language, Ukrainian faith. Uh, so it may be somewhat different now. But I can tell you this, even ethnic Russians on, in Crimea, who support being part of Russia... Not enthusiastic about the lack of democracy that they face as Russian citizens, whereas when they were under control of Kiev, it was more or less a democracy. Right.
1: The attacks on Kiev were pretty heavy this time, Uh, Ambassador. What does that mean for our diplomatic corps and for our our current ambassadors? Should they be there?
4: Uh, You know, I I was a diplomat for 31 years. Um, There's a certain amount of risk that comes with being a diplomat. Um, I think that given the importance of this Uh, of of our support for Ukraine, the embassy should stay. And I think a very clear message should be sent to to Moscow, that if our embassy is hit, there will be major, major repercussions.
1: Case in point, as we talk about the spirit of the Ukrainian people, this is a remarkable headline on on our terminal. Angry Ukrainians donate $5.6 million for killer drones. This is according uh, to a a fund that says on Facebook it started raising money for Ukrainian kamikaze drones that have been successfully tested in the battlefield, knowing, of course, Ambassador, that we're now seeing Russia use the drones that were provided uh, by Iran.
4: Correct. Look, the the Ukrainian people understand that if Russia wins in this war, uh, he is going to extinguish Ukrainian. That's a phrase used by the former president of Russia, Medvedev, and it's all over the Russian media. So that's why some people call this a war of genocide. That's right. So if Ukrainians want to live as Ukrainians, with Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian institutions in Ukraine, they have to beat this, this war. Beat president
1: the Zelensky reinforced that point today, he says he wants to wipe Ukraine off the face of the earth. Ambassador John Herbst, great to have you. Thank you so much for coming back. Former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, now with the Atlantic Council. The panel is next. This is Bloomberg.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The headline on the terminal, Putin, escalates with civilian strikes as army struggles at front. Disturbing images being shown around the world as we assemble our panel here following this deadly weekend in Ukraine. Bloomberg Politics contributor and Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano is with us today, along with Lester Munson, principal at BGR Group, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Thanks to both of you for being here. Uh, Jeannie, is it not time to start fulfilling the requests from Ukraine? The president was back on the phone today with President Zelensky, Biden and Zelensky. How many times have they had this conversation where he's asking for more longer range, more effective aircraft, even if possible? And if that had been sent months ago, would that many of missiles have gotten through today? I guess I'm having trouble understanding the delay
5: well you know th- the reality is we've spent we've sent what 16 billion dollars in aid to this point and the ambassador is right it's been decent but it's not been enough to stop this onslaught that after the bridge being partially blown up over the weekend yeah. and so you know the reality is either nato the west the united states are going to have to step up and you know talk about things like an iron dome and more high mars and or they're gonna have to put pressure in another direction. And that is a direction towards some kind of, you know, discussion of peace talks Mm -hmm. and, or both. I mean, what I'm hearing, and I will tell you from the left, is that, there, you know, little dribbles of it, not a lot, but in, a, in addition to this sort of criticism that the White House isn't doing enough, we heard from Mike Pompeo and some others, we're also hearing from the far left some concern that there hasn't been enough of a push on peace talks because mm-hmm. as this war escalates and the president talks about Armageddon, where is this thing going to end? So I think the White House is going to feel pressure on both of those ends as we go forward into the winter.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because Donald Trump sees it the same way. And I'm pretty sure he got some applause when he brought this up at one of his two rallies. Actually, he did it at both. It was Nevada, uh, right? And, uh, and Arizona. Here's Donald Trump.
2: We must demand the immediate negotiation of a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine, or we will end up in World War III, and there will be nothing left of our planet. all, because stupid people didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue. They don't under- They really don't understand... I rebuilt our military, I rebuilt our nuclear power. They don't understand what they're dealing with, the power of nuclear. They have no idea what they're doing.
1: Lester Munson, these calls are are growing louder. And, and granted, to Jeannie's point here, we're really just seeing them start to crop up here. Questions about the spending and now questions about attempts to have peace talks of course Donald Trump has his own interests here. he says this never would have happened because uh, he you know he would have talked everybody down or something but I wonder is this something that progressive Democrats and and conservatives will have in common at some point?
3: I think we're all getting a little distracted here from what is what is in many ways the most important thing that's that's happening in Ukraine, which is that Ukrainian forces, because of U.S. assistance, are pushing Russian forces back and in the direction of being out of Ukraine. Now, there's a long way to go. But on the ground, Zelensky and his fighters are prevailing. Kudos to the Biden administration for doing what they have done. Kudos to Congress for providing the wherewithal to make that happen. Yes, there needs to be more missile defense. Yes, we should be concerned about the use of nuclear weapons. But I think talking about a settlement now is a, is totally playing into Putin's hands. Uh, similarly, I think an overemphasis, and I, and I do mean over overemphasis on missile defense at this point, might distract us from what is really the important thing, which is pushing Ro- Russian forces back. That is what's happening on the ground. We really should be doubling down on that. Vladimir Putin is reacting to his losses on the battlefield. Let's make sure they continue.
1: This is why of course the nuke threats keep coming genie uh, and we we've heard it again and Putin's threatening to do more targeting of civilian areas like we saw over the weekend. You mentioned that word Armageddon that was uh, th- that's what got all the play when, when when President Biden said that last week. But are you not ruling out this as a possibility the more desperate Vladimir Putin gets?
5: You know, I don't think we can rule anything out at this point. I mean, we hear from all the experts on this in the United States and in the West that that is not likely to happen. You know, yeah. that they put the chances around, what, 10, 15 percent. So you can't rule it out. It's unlikely to happen. It's a difficult thing to do. That said, we've all talked about the fact that a cornered Putin is a very dangerous Putin. And let's not forget, they now have a new military commander. And he was the same guy who was That's responsible right. for the intervention in Syria. And so this is a ferocious response in the last 24, 48 hours with these 80 plus missiles and the attacks on civilians. So I don't think we can rule that out. And I think, you know, I thought, quite frankly, President Biden talking about that at a fundraiser was irresponsible myself. Mm -hmm. But it is, you know, apparently something that he is hearing when he is getting these briefings or it's on his mind. And that's got to be a frightening prospect.
1: Lester, what do you make of that? I'm glad that Jeannie brought it up. Uh, General Sergei Surovkin, if I'm saying it right, commander of all troops fighting in Ukraine, uh, who has quite a reputation for what was done in Syria. Does that mean more civilian deaths?
3: Well, again, I I, I think we need to keep our eye on the ball. These, these attacks against civilian targets are terrible. The Russians should be condemned across the board for them. Yeah. We should be providing missile defense for the Ukrainians. They are, however, not militarily significant the real issue is progress on the ground Ukrainians are prevailing let's not get distracted from that you know the the Russians very likely blew up their own uh, Nord Stream terminal yes, uh, right. a few days ago as another way to distract us it didn't work very well Putin's trying the the nuclear rhetoric they're trying these attacks on civilian targets which are which are not going to change the facts on the ground unless we let them Uh, So the The more progress that
1: Ukraine makes, though, of course, the more potentially desperate Vladimir Putin gets. Not that that is new. Lester and Jeannie, stay with us. Our panel for the hour. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg. We are right in the heart of debate season now. We've got Ohio Senate tonight. I know your DVR is set for the Georgia Senate debate on Friday. Does anyone use a DVR anymore? Uh, this, of course, after Senate candidates in both Wisconsin and North Carolina held their debates over the weekend. and get another spin in Wisconsin in a couple of days. It's like holiday season for political wonks. We're just sitting around watching TV all day. And if you watch a couple of these, well, let's take the two from over the weekend as our baseline. You realize there are two major issues here. And it coincides with conversations that we have been having on this program for months. And we hate to oversimplify. Look, there are great nuances to each race, but it is largely when it comes down to these debates about abortion versus inflation. What's going to be more important to you? In uh, North Carolina, Ted Budd, Congressman Ted Budd, of course, the Republican nominee, uh, went straight for the democrat sherry beasley on this issue
3: i just think that my opponent is up for abortion she's she's a supporter of abortion at any time for any reason
1: all the way up to him until the moment of birth and she wants to do that at taxpayer expense all the way to the moment of birth which is something we keep hearing uh from republicans on the trail democrats don't always do so well uh trying to qualify their positions coming back sherry beasley by the way was uh Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court.
0: I support the Roe versus Wade framework, which allows for protections and restrictions on abortion later in pregnancy, so that when abortion happens later in pregnancy, that it only happens when there are serious problems, like when the mother's life is at risk.
1: We seek analysis and some assistance here from Samara Clark, professor of political science at the University of Arizona. Uh, Donald Trump was back in your state over the weekend. I see, Samara. Welcome. Uh, it's great to have you. I wonder uh, if if this is going to boil down to something that simple. And these are very close races. They're all within a couple of points, if not the margin of error here. Based on what we heard in Wisconsin and North Carolina, inflation versus abortion. This is what the midterms might be remembered for.
6: Absolutely. I mean, things here are so tight in Arizona, particularly the governor's race, where we are really not seeing any polls that show either candidate outside the margin of error. So that's the Lake Hobbs race here. Part of the reason is that we don't have any incumbents in that race, neither, you know, or Current governor, Doug Ducey, is, uh, is out. He's term limited out. So we've got two newcomers, relatively. We have a very, very divided electorate in Arizona when it comes to the proportion of uh, voters who identify as Democrat versus Republican. Mm-hmm. And you're exactly right. I mean, the two issues that are at the forefront of people's minds include abortion and inflation. Both of those are incredibly important here in Arizona because we have this new ban. I believe it was now it's now – Paused by the courts, they were trying to reevaluate it. But the, we've got a new ban on, on abortion in Arizona. Hmm. Arizona was one of the hardest hit states when it came to inflation rates. So both of these things are incredibly salient to voters.
1: Uh, the, yeah, look, this this is something that you're going to be hearing a lot about, and it's, it's almost like a formula. The, you know, first the Republican candidate in an opening statement is asked, or in, in the first question, uh, doesn't answer the question, but refers to the inflation that has gripped the country that Joe Biden's responsible for, and that their opponent is part of. Then the Democrat comes back around to talk about how he this this Republican wants to take your rights away, and we go from there. Uh, by the way, this de- this uh, debate coming up in, in Arizona will be an empty chair, right? Carrie Lake will be alone for a half an hour or something in the next couple of days.
6: That's right. Hobbs has been refusing to debate Lake, which is a whole other issue here in Arizona. Hobbs argues that Lake is peddling misinformation. She's an election denier. Hobbs does not want to... Dignify her questions with responses—that sort of a thing. You know whether or not this is a great move for Hobbs is a bit of a tough question. I think personally, you know, Hobbs could probably use a little more name recognition. She could probably get out there a little more. Get a couple zingers. yeah, I mean, you know, she hasn't perform- been performing as well as one might expect in the polls, given that, you know, we have a fairly popular Democratic senator who is, who is running again, Mark Kelly. The yes, polls right. suggest that he should win. I mean, it's a close race, but he looks like he's pretty much out of the margin of error in most polls. You would think that that would you know, be a big boost for Hobbs, and potentially it has been. But, you know, she's not not ahead in any polls. I mean, it's it's neck and neck. What Lake really has in her advantage is there's more Arizonans who are Republicans than are Democrats, and that's going to help any Republican (laughs) candidate.
1: Right. I see CNN has uh, Katie Hobbs up by three, but the real clear poll of polls has Carrie Lake up by basically one point. These are so close, Samara, whether we're talking about that race, whether we're talking about some of the Senate races that I already mentioned, uh, including the one that's going to happen in Ohio tonight. Will debates... In the year twenty twenty two actually make any difference? You mentioned name recognition, I get that, but but will any of these candidates move the needle in a televised
6: debate? Well you, the first thing I would say is when you have such a close race, then you really can't risk anything. I mean anything could help at this point yeah you're going to have candidates out there who are winning by you know five thousand vote margins, less you know thousand vote margins like this is going to become a really, really tight race. Now, we don't typically see people change their votes. You know, say, you know what, I came in as a Lake voter, but actually I'm voting for Hobbes. Right. That's pretty unlikely given how partisan the population is. But we do know a lot of people who just don't want to vote. They say, you know what, I don't like, I don't like either of them. I'm not inspired by either of them. I've got a busy day. I don't remember what my ballot is. I'm not going to deal with it. What these candidates need to do is get the voters who are already sympathetic toward them to feel sufficiently motivated to actually show up and vote. I mean, that is what they're looking for.
1: Uh, The uh, rhetoric that we heard at the Trump rally in Arizona over the weekend was uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, How much is that actually floating Carrie Lake's campaign? How much is the Trump effect driving her popularity? I know that she was very well known as a TV anchor before this.
6: Sure. So I think the Trump, the Trump endorsement, the Trump Association is helping her amongst the proportion of Republicans who like Trump. But I will say my own polling that we've been doing out of Arizona suggests that's it's probably only about half of Arizona Republicans. Republicans here in Arizona are actually quite divided when it comes to how they feel about Trump. We've got a big proportion of Republicans who don't like Trump, who don't, you know, they'd vote for him if he were the candidate because, frankly, they're Republicans and those are the policies they support. But if they had an option, they would like somebody else. Those people are the ones who supported Lake's opponents in the primaries. They are the ones who may not want to show up and vote on Election Day. There is, however, this other proportion of Republicans in Arizona, about half of them who do like Trump, who do respect his endorsement, and that is, for them, a big factor in supporting Lake. So, you know, what it's doing, it's a bit of a risky gamble because it's increasing turnout among the base, but it is risking turnout, it's risking support among Republicans who aren't huge Trump fans.
1: Fascinating, as always, to check in with Samara Clark. Thank you, Samara, for your insights. Political scientists at the University of Arizona, right there, where it's happening, right now. And we'll reassemble our panel next. Lester Munson's with us today, along with Jeannie Shanzano. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We'll bring you into one of these Trump rallies coming up. This is Bloomberg.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha,
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. As we reassemble our panel following a wild weekend on the trail, not just the debates, but two Trump rallies and a whole bunch of smaller rallies for candidates as everyone comes to grips with the fact that there's a month to go. That'll be the headline tomorrow, right? One month to go uh, until the midterms. And we're just still playing music, which is fine, but uh, it keeps me moving. After the debate in North Carolina, it did leave me questioning the sort of approach to the issues that we were just talking about uh, a few moments ago with Samara Clark, and namely abortion, because Democrats don't always have the retort, if this is going to be the issue here— that is, you know, at the ready when this stuff comes up. Here's uh, Sherry Beasley again in her debate with Senator Ted Budd.
0: The bottom line is Congressman Budd wants to be in between a woman and her doctor. And there is no place in the exam room for Congressman Budd.
1: So that line got a lot of attention. And uh, fine, it's sound bitable. People walk away with it. It gets lots of replays on Twitter and so forth. Uh, but as I played for you before, Ted Budd is much more to the point in his argument here, as we've been hearing from Republican candidates around the country, Right, abortion up until the moment of birth. I just think that my opponent is up for abortion. She's, she's a supporter of abortion at any time, for any reason, all the way up to him until the moment of birth. And she wants to do that at taxpayer expense. And if you ask Donald Trump, I mean, in his rallies, he says up until the moment of birth and after. Let's reassemble the panel for their thoughts on the rhetoric here. Jeannie Shanzano and Lester Munson are with us. Democratic analysts, Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Lester Munson of BGR Group, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I hate to pull you both into this, but this is one of the most important debates in the country right now. Jeannie, how did Democrats answer what is essentially an untrue accusation?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because both sides are trying to say that the other side is more extreme and, um, you know, it's like an extremist debate out there. And, you know, rep- Democrats have to do a good job of making the case that their what their positions are, what their limits are. I did hear Alyssa Slotkin over the weekend from Michigan. She was Mm -hmm. on the air when she was asked this question. I thought she did a good job. She basically made the case that she wants to codify Roe and that there should be restrictions on the third trimester and that people uh, who are claiming otherwise, uh, they need to be responded to. Um, So you know there is a response out there, but the more they are hit on this, the more they're going to have to shore up how they respond in this way. Mm -hmm. And I would also just say that Bernie Sanders had a really interesting op-ed out over the last day or so, claiming that Democrats have to get off the only focusing on abortion issue and also address the economic Mm -hmm. issue as well. So there's two sides to this, that they have to address. well that's
1: for sure it's just when it comes to you know being painted into a corner here lester it does seem like at times democrats are allowing that to happen here's senator ron johnson of course the republican from wisconsin in his debate over the weekend it's almost word for word what we heard from ted but
3: the most extreme position here would be no limits on abortion whatsoever allowing abortion right up to the moment of birth which is what the lieutenant governor supports that's
1: technically not true uh lester i mean obviously uh, there are emergencies that might lead to something like that uh, late in a pregnancy, but that really doesn't happen very often. That is that is considered a, extreme, an extreme medical procedure. Uh, if Democrats are going to make abortion the issue going into the midterms here, don't they need a better reply on that?
3: Yeah, I think they do. Uh, the, the Republican, you know, when the Dobbs decision first came down a few months ago, Republicans were really uh, amazingly on their heels and didn't have... Much constructive to say about it, and were and were really uh, kind of on the receiving end of of the attacks. Mm-hmm. They've they've turned that around to some extent. The the rhetoric we're seeing and uh, this this is you know election end of campaign rhetoric is more effective than where they had been a few months ago. So they've been yeah. they've been testing some messages and they've been doing a better job, I would say, of addressing the issue at least in some fashion. Democrats need to be clear. I do think uh, you know this this is this is not a presidential year election. So turnout is what both sides are looking for. The the fact that both sides are kind of looking to get to the middle on this, I guess I take some heart in and they're not just going to their extremes and trying to drive out the most motivated voters. So I think How it's kind of interesting that on in this With, with well, regard you know, to this seeing, issue? Sure. I think you know you're seeing some Democrats admit that they'll they'll be in favor of some restrictions. And Republicans focusing less on, you know, uh, a a ban from the moment of conception and more on taxpayer funding and late term abortion. To me, uh, from kind of from arm's length away, I see this as both sides kind of talking a little bit, at least towards the middle. So I take I take some heart in that.
1: You mentioned end of campaign rhetoric, I think is how you put it, Lester Jeannie. I don't know if you heard uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene over the weekend, who was at the Arizona or the Trump Arizona rally just yesterday. Uh, coming out full-blown replacement theory. Listen.
5: Joe Biden's 5 million illegal aliens are on the verge of replacing you, replacing your jobs, and replacing your kids in school. And coming from all over the world, they're also replacing your culture. And that's not great for America. Just
1: imagine how that played on Twitter. I'm sure the replies are still coming in here, Jeannie. This is the stuff that, that motivates voters at the last minute. What's the point?
5: Well, you know, she's speaking at a Trump campaign rally. Um, we yeah. also heard Tommy Tupperville out uh, making comments in another uh, area that that were equally offensive to many people. Um, so they're speaking to a particular audience. And, and you know, I, I did see uh, the reaction on Twitter, and, and it has been swift, as it always is, with somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, or in this case, Tommy Tupperville. Um, but, you know, this is not—the reality is— is that for Republicans and Democrats, you know, Lester is right, they have to get their base out to vote in this midterm. But the the real fight is in the suburbs. And it is in terms of the moderates, independents, particularly women in some of these critical states like Georgia, like Nevada. And so in that case, this, you know, extreme language is not helpful to them and that's a real problem and and that has long been a problem on the republican side that they're going to have to watch it
1: you mentioned uh tommy tuberville a republican from alabama the senator spoke the night earlier uh at the uh, nevada rally and we did have to bleep what he said but it's not the swear word that offended people
3: some people say well they're soft on crime no they're not soft on crime they're pro-crime they want crime they want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bullshit. They are not owed that.
1: Lester, the crowd loved it. Who is that helping, though? I mean, I realize this is a Trump rally, but, I mean, are you really – we're going to go there when it, on reparations, a white man from Alabama? How's that going to help turn out? Uh,
3: it's, pretty, it's pretty gross. Um. I, I think what we're, we're seeing here is less is less about uh, trying to win elections here in November of 2022 and more about the Republican primary for president in 2024. Really? And uh, and the former president trying to position himself as far to the right as possible so that no one can outflank him in in the primaries. He's uh, it, that'll start in really a few months uh, and so he's he's worried about Ron DeSantis. He's worried about some of these other younger mm-hmm. Republicans coming up and challenging him. He's trying to put a stake in the ground that no one will be able to get around to the right. And it's uh, so that's that's, I think, what we're seeing with that redefining the right here. Uh, I
1: haven't even played Donald Trump yet. He, he provided us with uh, with so much fodder here. He, of course, spoke at his own rallies. And I have to ask you, I mean, while we're while we're we're kind of taking a second look at some ideas here, this idea of the Chinese restaurant on the bowling alley—I don't know if you're you're on board with this—but the president called for an investigation into uh, m- most of the, the the presidents who preceded him: George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, saying that they also uh, mishandled documents. But he, he he had a different way of getting to it with George H.W. Bush.
2: George H.W. Bush. Took millions of documents to a former bowling alley and a former Chinese restaurant where they combined them. So they're in a bowling alley slash Chinese restaurant.
1: Now I don't. I, so I, as I have learned since then, uh, this is from an unrelated story from 1993 about mishandling of computer data under the H.W. Bush administration. Uh, the Chinese restaurant and bowling alley comes from a year later Associated Press report about how the president, the former president, stored uh, everything from his life in, in this massive warehouse-like room that was a at one time a bowling alley. It was next door to what was once a Chinese restaurant. But we've got a whole new part of the stump speech here, Jeannie. It, it does make for good visuals, I guess.
5: Yeah, I mean, this is typical Donald Trump. You know, it's his usual defense of, you know, everybody's doing it. Why don't you look at the other guy? And he also called in Hillary Clinton and, you know, all of the former presidents, you know, initially. When the stories came out, as we recall, um, he made this claim about Barack Obama, and now he has expanded it to include all of the former presidents and one of his opponents. And and the reality is, is it's a very different scenario. The National Archives took these documents to this facility because it was in the same city where Bush was opening his library. That is a far cry from what Donald Trump is accused of. But of course, this plays into his narrative (laughs) that the FBI is political that you know he that he is you know under yeah. attack and you know everybody else is doing it but why aren't they being investigated kind well, of thing. Jeb so Bush typical. tweeted
1: this out said my dad enjoyed a good Chinese meal enjoyed the challenge of 710 split what the heck is up with you we'll meet you back here tomorrow with highlights from the Ohio debate I'm Joe Matthew this is Bloomberg
0: the countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th.